Improving our vision from John chapter 9 verses 1 to 17. Now I can't imagine what it would be like to be blind. We have one in our congregation, Barbara, who wasn't born blind but she developed a blindness later on in life. So I don't know what it's like to be blind. And most of you here don't know that either. To not be able to see people and recognise faces, to be unable to drive a car and stop at a lookout and just wonder at God's creation and take a picture, to be unable to watch a beautiful sunset, to be able to walk down a street without someone helping. I can't imagine living life completely in the dark. But there's something else out there much worse than physical blindness. Not being able to see and recognise God's hands in his marvellous act of creation. You can physically see it, but you cannot recognise, you don't recognise, you don't see the hands behind the marvellous work of art. Not knowing where your life is going. Not knowing if you're right with God, the insecurity that brings. Not knowing if you're going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. All of these are symptoms of spiritual blindness. And it is much more tragic than physical blindness because it has eternal implications. Now one of the main reasons Jesus came into our world was to teach us to see, to see truth, to see the reality of life as it really is, to take the covers off and to show the reality of life without God, but at the same time to open our eyes to a world that he came to open up for us. Yes, to some he made physical sight possible, but his main concern was to make us see spiritually. In fact, he also spoke of the danger of being able to see physically And the danger is that if your eyes cause you to fall into temptation, it's probably better that you be blind rather than having that, your eyes. And we know that our eyes leads us into all sorts of temptation. So he's saying, better for you to go to heaven blind rather than be able to see and end up in hell. That's how seriously he took Spiritual blindness. Now in today's Bible lesson from our series in John, we're going to learn about how Jesus healed a man, that's today and and next week, who was born both physically and spiritually blind. The double whammy. In a very real way, through the eyes of this blind man, we're also going to travel through a journey of discovery. 
We're also, and we're going, we're going to be forced to see Jesus and decide how we will respond to him. So, uh, first of all, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3. Someone to blame. Someone to blame. As he, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. At first glance, it, it just appears that Jesus just happened to come across a blind man on the side of the road. But of course, with Jesus, there was no coincidence. Only God incidents. Nothing happened by chance. The disciples who are with him ask about the man's condition. To the disciples, this person on the side of the road, a beggar, is a topic of discussion. There was no compassion, there was no reaching out to this guy and wanting to find out about his life or what happened to him, nothing like that. It is just as it happens in so many parts of the world. He simply becomes a topic of discussion. And the discussion is is a form of a question. Who sinned? They displayed their theodicy. Okay. Dad, what's a theodicy? Theodicy is it is man or mankind trying to understand or justify the ways of God with mankind, particularly when it comes to human suffering. That's what this chapter 9 is about. We have a whole book that deals with the theodicy of God and it's Job, for example. Now these disciples, and I think all of us have a working theodicy, some type, some way that we try and explain what is happening. And particularly if you're a Christian, for the people who are not Christians, they have some ways and, and, and they always try and explain it in one way or another and, and but mostly without God in the picture. Now, their working theodicy goes something like this. This is the disciples, right? Suffering is everywhere and suffering is always invariably the result of sin. It's either your sin or your parents' sin. But in some form or another, suffering is always the result of of sin. Someone has to pay. At least, unlike many of the liberals uh, today, they believed in judgment. They believed in judgment. They believed that God does punish sin. I'll give you a situation. It will be your fault. It will be your fault if through your own reckless driving 
you become seriously injured in an accident. You have no one else to blame. You can't say, why is God punishing me? It's got everything to do with you and your behaviour on the road. Whether you're on the phone, whether you were distracted, whether you went through, disobeyed the road rules and went through a red light and T-boned somebody else. But you can't also, sorry, but you can also be the one injured if you happen to be that other, the other vehicle that was T-boned by this person who was just, wasn't paying attention and through no fault of your own, you went through a green light and this other person just split you in half. You find yourself suffering through no fault of your own. Sometimes there is an immediate connection between suffering and sin. Sometimes there is not. And this whole process starts to happen when something bad happens. If only I didn't stop to buy that cup of coffee, then I would have missed that accident by a couple of minutes. You know how that whole process goes through your mind? If only I left home earlier. If only I left home later. If only I missed that train. If only I didn't miss that train. If only, and you've heard the stories, such a person missed their flight and the flight ended up in the middle of the ocean. We go through this whole process of trying to understand why things are happening. And we often attempted to jump, we, we attempted to jump in and say this happened because of that. Because we know. Obviously. No, we don't. We're just simply offering an opinion. If we are honest, most times we have to admit that we have no idea. Just like Job's friends, they thought they had an idea of what Job had done wrong and they came up with all their theories. Come on, Job, just tell us, what did you do wrong for suffering so much? In God's economy, it is not that simple. So don't be so quick to open your mouth and give your opinion. Yes, there is a reason. Now, whether we can discern the reason at the time is another matter. Most people think that God is obligated to explain his providence to them and they want to know right there and then, right now, please. I want to know the reason why this is happening. I would encourage you not to speculate on those possible answers when people ask. And even if you're visiting somebody in hospital and the family asks or even the one who is suffering asks, why is this happening to me? Don't be so quick to give an answer. Pray beforehand. And make sure the answer that you give is from Scripture. Not just your idea. Because ultimately, you see, all suffering goes back 
to our rebellion in the Garden of Eden. We must understand that all physical problems in this fleeting world are consequences of the fall. That's where the chain reaction started. And when you put the dimension of the spiritual warfare, the principalities and power, the battle that is going on for the heart and soul of mankind, we have very little idea of what's going on. What we do know, what we do know is that God is not accountable for evil but he allows it to happen in this world. I don't know how that works with your theodicy or not but ultimately this is the answer we come from scripture. And at the cross he underwrites the cost and one day he will overcome it. No more tears. Revelation tells us that. In this instance, Jesus isn't interested. He's not interested in answering the question, who sinned? He doesn't answer the question head on. He says, it was neither this man that sinned nor his parents. An interesting thought would be, how could he have sinned if he was born blind? How could he have sinned? Jesus is more concerned to answer the question, how can God be glorified in this troubling situation? Jesus doesn't take the viewpoint that there is no purpose in the blindness of this man. There is a purpose in this man's suffering because suffering is always purposeful. There is a reason. That we don't know the reason is the issue, but there is a reason. So instead of wallowing in sorrow and in grief, we need to move forward and and part of our theodicy needs to come to the point that we ask the question, how can God be glorified in this position? And yes, if God allows it, we will see the providential hand of God years later and if not this side of heaven, then certainly on the other side. We will see how he has guided us through the difficulty. God's purpose in this man's blindness is to provide this remarkable illustration of the gospel itself. He will eventually discover Christ, this man will discover Christ in a marvellous way that he never knew before. He starts mumbling along and he doesn't really know what has happened. But by the end of the chapter, he knows because he's confronted with the person of Jesus Christ. Similarly, it is only in affliction that the believer will sometimes come to realise the depth and the extent of his fellowship with Christ. It's only when God peels the covers that we come 
to the reality of our faith and relationship with God. I don't like it. You probably don't like it. But sometimes God has to remove all the buttresses in our lives and everything that we hang on to. And then we've got nothing else. We're saying, we've only got God and that should be enough. That's what Job found out. That's why he says, but now my eyes have what? Have seen you. His eyes have been opened to a new reality of God that he never knew before. He wasn't a bad man. He was a good man. But now his faith has gone to a different level. Verses 4 and 5, a limited time. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What is the night to which the Lord refers to? Is it the night of his own death or the night into which Jewish history was about to pass because of the unbelief of the nation when a few years later uh, the nation will be overrun by the Romans in a very ugly way? Is it the night when the earth will pass away on the great day of judgment which is yet to happen? I think here the day is the time that our Lord is working his miracles. This is the day when there is an opportunity where he is performing miracles when he is preaching to the crowds, to those who will listen, to those who would follow him. He wasn't going to pass by this blind man. He was going to stop and turn to speak to the woman who touched his garment. He, was, he's, he wasn't just going to rush He was going to pay special attention to people in need. All of these things would happen during the day when there was an opportunity to work. The night or the darkness will fall on national Israel when they crucify Jesus. And as they crucified him and as he died, a darkness fell over the land. Can you imagine that darkness? It was more than physical, it was a spiritual darkness, wasn't it? Jesus, as man, he knew that his time was limited. But while he is here, the great I am, the great I am, I am the light of the world, the great I am is here. There is a story uh, of the uh, renowned psychologist Abraham Maslow. He, um, early in his life, he had a severe heart attack. And out of that crisis that he survived, he, he came to a radically changed view of his life. It was like an epiphany. He spoke of what he called his post-mortem life or life as he saw it in the face of death or when confronted by death. He was given a second chance at life. And he said said this, and I quote, he says, one important aspect of the the post-mortem life is that everything gets doubly precious, gets piercingly important. 
you get stabbed by small things, by flowers, by babies, by beautiful things. Just the very act of living, of walking, of breathing, of eating and having friends and chatting, everything seems to look more beautiful rather than less. And he says, one gets a much intensified sense of the presence of miracles. I hope he doesn't take a near-death experience for you to realise the beauty of life and the chance that God has given us, the privilege that we have to live this life. Don't rush too quickly past the beautiful sunset. Pause. Stay and chat and converse with people, each person created in God's image. Don't just pass them by. These are opportunities that God puts in our path. Most of us fail to see the reality of death. Especially when we're young, we tell ourselves that we have forever and that what we're experiencing today will be there tomorrow, so no need to hurry. We live basically in denial, as though we have an unlimited amount of time and resources and strength, and therefore any particular thing does not have to be viewed with intensity, with purpose and in greater depth, to ponder. What if we change that? The psalmist said these beautiful words, Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days aright. Why? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. Don't waste your days Don't waste your weeks, don't waste your life, basically. Live your life purposefully. Remember what definition of freedom that we spoke of last week, what was it? To be all that you were meant to be under God. To be all that you were meant to be. Live your life that way. And when you think about it, death can reveal to us how to live a worthwhile life. When we admit that we do not have forever, we become a little more alert to the present. I just wish it didn't take a cancer scare or a heart attack or the loss of a loved one to make us realise this truth and start living life more wisely. We only have a very limited amount of time and in the expanse of eternity it is but a you hear but a blip when you're talking about eternity. Teach us to number our days. Oh Lord, may this be a prayer, isn't it? May this be a prayer. Then we come to verses four to seven to the recreation. After saying this he spat on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. 
the one who said at the beginning of creation, he said, let there be light. And the one who said, just now said, I am the light of the world, is the same one. Is the one who is restoring light, he's turning the, the switches on for this man. He will turn the lights on so that he may no longer walk in darkness, that he may see not only light, but also be able to appreciate the light of lights. He who is healed, he who healed the sick with a word, the one who healed the centurion from a far distance in a different town and just gave the word and the, the person was healed. He who raised the dead with a simple command could easily have simply dispensed with this process, this illustration here with mud and saliva and, and this process of going and washing. Why complicate things? Why? Because he's teaching us a lesson. That's why. It's a show and tell. It takes us, he's taking us to the act of creation, isn't he? The one who moulded man from the dust of the ground is making some mud to place it on the man's eyes. Because you see, to the blind... You've lost one sense, but then the other senses start to be very necessary. To the blind, the sense of touch is important, of hearing, of smell, vitally important. And here, Jesus gives him a, a tactile sign by, by touching his eyes with clay. He stands so close to him that he can literally, this man can literally <clears throat> smell his healer. He gives him an audible sign by telling him to go and wash in a pool. It wasn't just any pool, but the pool that's actually called Scent. It is still there today in Jerusalem. You can see it. The pool is called scent, which is a little odd when you first read it, but it is another clue. And, 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 and John drops these clues that make sense. And he says, in case you don't understand it, he puts it in a parenthesis and he says, which is called scent, because John has been telling us all along that Jesus is the one who has been sent from the Father. And going to that pool would remind this man of the mission of the person of Jesus. And going to that pool would also remind this person, this blind person who is going to be healed, reminds him of his mission as he is sent to be a witness for Christ to his family and then to the Jews. He is sent, he is sent, and then he is sent. I 
think about this fellow. Having been born blind, he was never able to see his mother or father. He didn't know what he looked like himself. And at Jesus' healing, it's not just the physical eyes because the eyes are connected to the brain. The brain is the one that actually interprets the image and makes sense of them. So it's not just the eyes, but it's actually the whole process of of recognising the signals in the brain. Jesus was going to heal all of that. To to, to be able to, his whole brain had to be rewired to accept shapes and colours and the rest of God's creation. Most of the world is born. Well, the world is born spiritually blind. Not just this man who was born physically, but the world is born spiritually blind. Blind to the things of God. It is only God who can give sight to the spiritually blind so they can appreciate truth like never before. Do not despair. Do not despair at the darkness in which we live in. The darkness that displays itself when a state government in Queensland brings in abortion laws that human life can be terminated after 22 weeks in the womb. That is darkness. Do not despair at the things that people say about us or about our God. They are in darkness. They are like the people of Nineveh who cannot tell their right hand from the left. I can't see it. I can't. We are witnessing the days of the judges when the spiritually blind did what was right They went about life doing what was right in their own eyes. How can you do right in your own eyes when you're spiritually blind? And after Jesus exposed the man to this physical light, he will then begin to lead him through a series of events that brought him face to face with who he really was. Being able to see with physical eyes, you see, is never enough. We must come to a place where we are able to see spiritual truth. And a witness, verses 8 to 17. We're only going to read verses 16 and 17, being a witness. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others ask, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. Let's retake. The man Jesus sent to the pool called sent is then sent to his family and neighbours and then sent to the Pharisees to tell them what God has done. Strictly speaking, 
He's not door knocking, telling everybody what God has done in his life. He's not that type of, he's not, not doing that type of witnessing. He's, people are coming to him asking questions. And he's answering the questions of how he was blind. He is the same person who was blind, even though some would say he just looks like him. He's probably his twin brother. No. How is it that he can see? There is nothing remarkable about this method of witnessing. A life is changed, you answer questions. That's what witnessing is about. You, you witness about what God has done in your life. Because people see the change. You used to do all this stuff and now what's happened? I'm glad you asked. To begin with, there is nothing remarkable in his method. He mumbles his way along. He starts off somewhat shy, but then by the end of the chapter, he's giving, he's giving back as good as he gets. The Pharisees are, are divided. Nothing new there because they cannot dismiss the fact that Jesus healed him. They then try to discredit him and, and Jesus because he was healed on the Sabbath. As you probably gather, uh, these Pharisees had a fixation about the Sabbath and what it meant. And John, we know that Jesus did many more miracles that aren't included in the Gospel of John, but John highlights the miracles that were performed by Jesus on the Sabbath. And these Pharisees saw themselves as guardians of the Sabbath because for them the Sabbath was about what I cannot do, not what I can do. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, especially on the Sabbath. One thing you couldn't do on the Sabbath was heal. And for them, Jesus is destroying the Sabbath. Jesus is undermining the authority of the guardians of the Sabbath by doing what he does. Now last week we spoke of the fact that they that the Jews took pride in their freedom. They protested when Jesus said that, you know, you are slaves. And says, no, we've never been slaves to anyone. Physically, yes, but we know that spiritually it's true. They were. They never were slaves to any other occupying force. The occupying Romans then, which they controlled most of their their daily lives. But the Romans left the Jews alone on the Sabbath. And these Pharisees then were the authority on this one day of the week. And here comes Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, and who tells them that he will destroy the temple and raise it in three days and who uses the language which is reserved for God himself by describing himself as I am. What was happening? Well, for these Pharisees who sought to be devoted to God, who were the teachers of the law, who were the experts in the law of God, who were supposed to bring people to God, 
If they were not blind, they certainly had many spiritual blind spots in the form of prejudices and preconceived ideas. Jesus performed a miracle and these leaders couldn't see it. Why do we have so many different denominations? <laughs> the Baptists and Pentecostals and Anglicans. I think in one answer is that God likes variety. And I certainly not one of those preachers would say because you don't you're not a Baptist, you're going to hell. God likes variety in his garden. People of all colours, of all different denominations. And I think what we don't want is like the sects and the cults who say unless you belong to, you know, unless you're a JW or you're a Mormon or you're an SDA, then you're going you're to go to hell. We don't say that. Only God saves. And God doesn't want us to develop blind spots to be open to his work. And to these Pharisees, Jesus did not fit into their straitjacket view of God and the way he does things. And when we have spiritual blind spots like these Pharisees, we can also stop seeing and appreciating what God is doing. God can be doing something fantastic right in your midst and you still won't see it. There's a story of uh, a young student in a monastery who was working to understand the writings of Aristotle about the, the natural world and the heavens in, you know, in, in light of his own direct observations. And looking through a lens at the sun one day, he saw uh, something that he had not recalled reading in the writings of Aristotle. He was excited and raced to tell his teacher, I found something, I've discovered some spots in the sun that are not mentioned in Aristotle's work. But uh, the teacher wasn't as excited as he hoped. He was quickly deflated when his teacher calmly said, if the spots are not mentioned in Aristotle, then they are in your lens or in your eye and refuse to look into the telescope. Blind spots. The psalmist said, Psalm 119, verse 105, and this is in the message translation, by your words I can see where I am going. They throw a beam of light on my dark path. I think it's a great word, way to express it, isn't it? By your words I can see where I'm going. They throw a beam of light on my dark path. In conclusion, this man came into the world bomb blind and for him darkness was normal. That's all he knew. He never expected that he will be healed 
he would be healed and saved when he got up that morning. I'm sure that he planned to live day after day in darkness, in blackness. He didn't realise that there was a man named Jesus who could drive the darkness forever away from his life. He didn't know. The Apostle Paul, as a Pharisee, he thought he knew he was serving God. He was doing God's will by persecuting the Christian. He thought he was doing that. He was devoted to God. But he was blind. And Jesus had to appear to him to blind him, physically blind him, before removing the scales from his eyes. And the rest is history. And many today are in the same shape. They're lost and in the depths of spiritual darkness. They don't realise that Jesus, the light of the world, came to set them free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Maybe God is calling you and me to be his witnesses as to what he has done in our lives. Let's take our time, be mindful, look at life with different eyes, take the blinkers off, get rid of the blind spots and be open to what God is doing in our midst. Let's see what he can do with the eyes of faith. May God be praised. Amen.